Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Wednesday, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Greg, we won't be heading to the Dubliner for a pint today. That'll have to wait until next year. But talking about elections won't. In fact, we have our first congressional elections of the cycle on Saturday. But on today's episode, we're going to focus on the recent spate of Senate retirements and what effect those have on the midterms and the chamber itself. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's Gem. Jero's gem, a political number of note I introduce on every Down Ballot Counts episode, is five. That's how many vacancies there are in the 435-seat U.S. House of Representatives, which now has 219 Democrats and 211 Republicans. The most recent vacancy was created on Tuesday when New Mexico Democrat Deb Holland resigned following her confirmation by the Senate as President Biden's Interior Secretary. Holland had, since January 2019, represented the state's first district in and around Albuquerque, which leans Democratic. A special election is forthcoming. There will be special elections this Saturday, March the 20th, in two Louisiana districts, the second district in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and in the fifth district in the Northeast. In both districts, all candidates of all parties are running on one ballot, and the majority of the vote is needed to win. Otherwise, a runoff election with the top two vote-getters will be held April 24th. In the second district, the top two Democrats are state senators Troy Carter and Karen Carter-Peterson, while in the fifth district, Republican Julia Letlow is a heavy favorite to win either on Saturday or in the April runoff. There's a first-round special election May 1st in Texas's sixth congressional district, which is in the Fort Worth-Arlington area and has a mild Republican lean. Republican Ron Wright's death in February created that vacancy. Finally, there's an opening in Ohio's 11th district in parts of Cleveland and Akron following the resignation March 10 of Democrat Marsha Fudge after she was confirmed as Housing and Urban Development Secretary. Expect a special election there in the summer, but the Democratic special primary expected in the spring will be the key election in that Democratic bastion. And that, Down Ballot Counts listeners, is your Jero's gem. All right, up next, we'll discuss all the senators heading for the exits. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Five Republicans are retiring in 2022, and there may be more senators to come. With apologies to Buffalo Springfield, there's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's implications for the next election, as well as for the institution itself. Greg, let's start with that second one. There's a lot of institutional knowledge and seniority walking out the door. All five are ranking members on committees. Roy Blunt of Missouri, Rules Committee, is also the number four in leadership. Richard Shelby of Alabama, Appropriations. Rob Portman of Ohio, Homeland Security. Richard Burr of North Carolina, Help. And Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, Banking. What will their absence mean for governing in the next Congress? Yeah, these senators all have conservative voting records, but they are also traditionalists with a more congenial style. None of them are partisan bomb throwers or none of them have a confrontational style or engage in intemperate rhetoric. They're serious lawmakers who have a history of collaborating with Democrats. Shelby, for example, is close with Pat Leahy, 
his partisan opposite on the Appropriations Committee. On Monday, I, I watched former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat, make remarks praising Shelby for how he's helped Alabama's economy. So a lot of bipartisan uh, bonhomie there. Blunt is the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee that handles funding of labor, health, and education programs. And he has a history of working with Democrats like Patty Murray of Washington State to increase funding for medical research. And Toomey has teamed up with Joe Manchin of West Virginia on a measure that would strengthen gun background checks. So all five of them have conservative voting records. None of them, you wouldn't mistake any of them for a moderate Republican. But they also have, um, they're also very uh, serious you know, lawmakers who have a, a history of, um, of, of working with Democrats in the chamber. Yeah, and I, I think part of the question mark for the next Congress and what happens when, when these guys head out is who's going to replace them? And um, in several cases, they're probably going to be replaced by whoever wins the Republican primary. And these days, the Republican primaries, of course, are being waged on one issue, loyalty to Trump. Um, we're already seeing that in Ohio. you got Josh Mandel and Jane Timken elbowing each other for the most pro-Trump position. Um, and then there's Missouri, where Eric Greitens, the, the governor who resigned in disgrace amid some pretty weird scandals, um, may be looking to do the same thing. Um, and he could conceivably be successful in that very Republican state, right? Yeah, he very well could. Missouri is a very strongly Republican state now. It used to be a swing state, but Biden lost it by about uh, 15 percentage points. And you'd have to think whoever comes out of the Republican primary would be strongly favored uh, to win the general election. But if a former Governor Greitens runs, that could change things up a bit. We also want to wait and see who's going to emerge from the Democrats uh, in Missouri. Their strongest candidate very well could have been Jason Kander, who almost unseated Roy Blunt in 2016. Uh, Kander is not running again. Um, so we'll have to wait and see who wins that Democratic primary. But uh, the larger point, I think, is an important one that you made, and that is it's really these five uh, Republican primaries in those states will be an opportunity for um, pr former President Trump and uh, voters uh, loyal to him to try and uh, shape the outcome and determine what kind of Republican uh, will be the standard bearer in November 2022. And now these may not even be the only five. It's uh, We're here in mid-March, um, and it's possible we could get some more retirements. Who else do you have on Retirement Watch? Yeah, I think on the Republican side, I have Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Johnson is nearing the end of his second term, and he originally promised to serve no more than two terms. He seemed to back away from that pledge a bit, but he recently has indicated that he's likely to retire. So I'd be surprised if Ron Johnson ran for a third term. Democrats would seriously compete for that seat, uh, regardless of what Johnson does. Wisconsin has become a frequent host of competitive statewide elections now. Uh, Grassley is uh, 87 and a half. In fact, St. Patrick's Day today is his half birthday, and so he'll be 89 at the end of his current term. He's sharper and more active than most people his age, um, but he would be 95 if he ran for re-election and served out that term as well. He's proven unbeatable, and his retirement certainly would make Democrats more, far more competitive than they otherwise would be against Grassley. But Iowa, not unlike Ohio, has shifted from a swing state to a, a lean Republican state, so it wouldn't be an easy pickup uh, for Democrats. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, you know, Pat Leahy of Vermont, he's the Senate president pro tempore, uh, the longest serving senator in the chamber where he's been since 1975, the fifth longest serving senator in history. He'll be 82 at the end of his current term. But Vermont votes strongly Democratic in most elections. So I don't think uh, that seat would flip if Leahy did not seek reelection. 
All right. Well, I also want to note what's happening in Kentucky because the legislature there just approved a bill that would take away the governor's ability to fill a U.S. Senate vacancy with anyone of his choosing. Um, Instead, the party of the departing senator would provide three names for the governor to choose from. Now, the Kentucky governor, of course, is a Democrat, Andy Bashir, and he'll be in office through 2023. The legislature is overwhelmingly Republican, as are the state's two senators. And which of those senators is most likely to be considering a resignation? I'd guess Mitch McConnell, uh, even though he said last week he has no intentions to leave. Um, but that's definitely something to watch as well. Yeah, I agree. You got to, the Republicans really want to have that insurance policy there. You see that in, I think, a few other states where the state law uh, requires the, the a new senator to be of the same party as the senator who's departing the state. And uh, as you mentioned, Andy Bashir, a Democrat, was elected governor. You know, in a 50-50 Senate, uh, things you have to watch for are uh, unexpected uh, resignations or um, or deaths even. Um, and uh, you have to watch uh, the, the, the parties uh, of the governors who in, in those states would appoint uh, new senators. And uh, not every state uh, do you have uh, senators of the same party as the governor. Uh, and so uh, Kentucky is one state definitely to watch, although, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, I don't expect him to uh, resign early. He just got reelected uh, in November 2020. But, you know, in the event there is an unexpected opening in Kentucky uh, for uh, one of those two Republican seats, you do have a Democratic governor now who would be in a position to name a successor, which would, uh, you know, in 50-50 Senate, you have to watch pretty closely. Yeah, there's definitely no sense he's he's ready to go. But it seems like he's preparing an exit strategy. Let's say Republicans remain in the minority after the midterms. If he doesn't want to do that anymore, uh, you know, now it'd be a little bit easier to leave if he were to make that decision. But um, so we'll see what happens there. All right. So let's get down to the midterm politics of all this, though. How many of these uh, open seats do you expect to be competitive? And what's it mean for the GOP's chances of winning back the majority? Yeah, I think, I mean, the Senate campaign committees usually prefer their own incumbents to run again rather than retire because it's usually harder for the opposition to flip a seat that's being defended by a well-funded and well-known incumbent than it is for the opposition to win a so-called open seat. So these retirements do create some openings for Democrats of varying degree. You know, they probably begin, Republicans probably begin with a strong edge in Alabama and Missouri and at least a mild edge in Ohio and possibly in North Carolina, which... Uh, President Biden lost by just over a point in 2020. Pennsylvania is the only state of the five that voted for Biden in 2020, although that was a very close state as well. But it's clearly, I think, the toughest of the five states for the Republicans to hold. Uh, But the ramifications, I think, of the retirements on the 2022 Senate elections will depend on other factors, including the nominees in those open seats and a national political environment we can't really predict more than 19 months before the vote. Yeah, you know, I think you're totally right about the uh, the open seats and, and campaign committees, what they would prefer. But it's funny, there are those instances, uh, like in Texas, where Ted Cruz was running for re-election a few years ago. Um, you got to think Democrats did a lot better because they were running against him. They were able to raise more money. Um, and I wonder if they would prefer to run against Ron Johnson rather than um, whoever this new person would be, especially given... Just, you know, this week, over the weekend, uh, his comments uh, about the protesters, the rioters at the Capitol. Um, So anyway, it's kind of interesting thing to watch for. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I would just add that um, Roy Blunt in 2016, I mentioned, was nearly defeated by Jason Kander. Um, he ran, Blunt ran well behind President Trump's performance in 2016. Uh, it's probably a mix of Blunt's vulnerabilities and Kander's strengths. But, um, you know, I, I think Blunt would have been certainly favored to win again in 2022. But you're right. Uh, some incumbents have some uh, baggage and vulnerabilities where an open seat is actually more advantageous uh, to the retiring senator's party at times. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, before we close the show, we're bringing back our trivia segment with a slight twist. I'm going to try to answer it right now. And as a longtime political journalist whose historical recall isn't close to Greg's, I'll likely be humiliated in the process. But let's give it a shot. This is Down Ballot Counts. All right, it's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. We're going to put Kyle on the hot seat and try and stump him with a politically themed trivia question. Let's see if the luck of the Irish is with him this St. Patrick's Day. Kyle, are you ready for the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Hit me. Now, because we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to ask a question about Irish ancestry. I want to know what congressional district has the highest percentage of people who claim Irish ancestry. And Kyle, because that's a very hard question, open-ended, and I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to give you three choices. Is the answer Pennsylvania's first district held by Brian Fitzpatrick? Is it New Hampshire's first district held by Democrat Chris Pappas? Or is it Massachusetts's 8th district held by Democrat Stephen Lynch? What say you, Kyle? Well, this is really helpful to have multiple choice because I was going to guess a different Massachusetts district, but I'll go with Lynch's district. That is correct. The most heavily Irish congressional district in the country is Massachusetts's 8th district, which includes part of Boston and all of Quincy, Brockton, and Weymouth. More than 28% of residents there of some Irish descent, according to the most recent estimates available from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey. After Lynch's district, the next two districts with the highest share of Irish ancestry are also in Massachusetts. The 6th district of Democrat Seth Moulton, who represents Lynn Peabody in Salem, north of Boston. And the 9th district of Democrat Bill Keating, who represents New Bedford and Plymouth and part of Fall River. Pennsylvania's 1st district in suburban Philadelphia ranks 4th. The most heavily Irish state is not Massachusetts, which ranks 2nd at 19.8% of the population claiming Irish ancestry. First place actually belongs to New Hampshire at 20.2%. Rhode Island, Vermont, and Maine round out the top five. So your correct answer, Massachusetts's 8th district. Good job, Kyle, and good job to anyone listening who knew that as well. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination, and he endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real-time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. 
So if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.